ahead and turn to Luke chapter 20. Several years ago, we began the book of Luke, if you remember. Now, Luke is a big book. It's 24 chapters. It covers the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there are long chapters in Luke. And so uh, we have just been kind of taking seasons in Luke. And then we'll take a break and we'll, we'll go into some other teaching. Now, Luke does two books in the Bible. Uh, the book of Luke is the first one, which is the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Part two is the book of Acts which talks about now that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. He sends his spirit to be with the church. And the book of Acts really is a chronicles of, of how the church began and, and how it, it moved forward, spreading into all nations, preaching the gospel. And in a sense, we're continuing on from the book of Acts and where we live now today. But we are still in Luke, we're in chapter 20, and we are going to, for the most part, without break, be in Luke until the rest of this year. A good summary verse of the entire book of Luke is chapter 19, verse 10. It says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's, that's the essence of the book of Luke. Luke emphasizes very strongly Jesus did not come to save the elite, but he came to save the poor, the outcast, the rejected. That's why he records uh, some events like Zacchaeus, the prodigal son. Those are... Um, those alone are only in the teaching of Luke. Jesus did not come to save the religious elite, the moral elite, but he came so that by grace all who would come to him and believe in him would be saved. And this is why the Pharisees hated him. They hated him. In fact, earlier in chapter 20, which we preached uh, weeks or months ago, I can't remember when exactly, uh, we looked and Jesus is teaching the Pharisees, and they're stumbling over him, and they don't like him, and they're rejecting him. And so he says, well, the kingdom of God is going to be given to others, meaning it's going to go to the Gentiles, that's you and me, non-Jewish people. Now that makes the Jews, the Pharisees, I mean, outraged. These people aren't worthy of the kingdom of God. I mean, they don't even see other Jews worthy of the kingdom of God. You have to be Pharisees, the religious, moral elite. And so they're outraged that Jesus would even consider the gospel going towards the Gentiles. And so they, they want to hurt him. They want to kill him. And that's kind of where we're coming in. We see that the crowds, we see that society, we see that culture is largely against Jesus Christ and the gospel. And in that sense, we're very much the same today. Very much today, the gospel is, is rejected by society. Jesus is rejected in this world. And so we're going to see just what is the message that, God, that Jesus brings to us in Luke chapter 20 as the Pharisees are coming to try to trap him and how he responds, who he really came for, and how we live for him. And so one thing we do here is we stand at the reading of God's word. So I encourage you to go ahead and stand, Luke chapter 20, and we're going to read verses 19 through 26. Now we stand because we believe God's word comes inspired by the authority of God. And so we do so to honor God as we read his word. Luke chapter 20, verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. 
is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they, were not able in the, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Let's pray. God, this is, a, this is a passage. This is a familiar passage. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. God, sometimes I feel like these familiar passages we, we think we already know and we gloss over. But God, give us wisdom today. Help us to see your word. Help us to love your word. Help us to embrace the teaching of your word. Help us to understand not only the authority that comes in your word, but, but the life that is here that you are giving to us and the wisdom that is before us. Help us to understand the joy that you are setting before us and understanding the truth that is here in this passage. God, you are a glorious and awesome God. You have created us for a purpose. Help us to see that today. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. We're going to kind of walk through this passage. What we see is that those who fear man attempt to trap Jesus. In verse 19, we see that the opponents of Jesus want to hurt him at that very moment, at that very hour. Again, Jesus has just given a parable. He's given teaching that says the kingdom of God is going to be going to the Gentiles, and they, they hate him, and they want to kill him at that very moment. They believe he is a false messiah, and they want to hurt him. But notice why they don't. Verse 19, they feared the people. Now think about it. If they truly thought he was a false messiah, leading people to destruction, what would be the most godly thing? What would be the most loving thing? To bring it to everyone's attention and arrest the guy right there. But because they fear man, they want their prestige, their power, their position, that they're not going to do anything that will threaten who they are. And so, therefore, they don't do anything at that moment. But in verse 20, we read, they watch Jesus, and they devise a plan so as to trap him. And then we're told that they send spies to him. And so these spies come, and they're slick talkers. I mean, their words are like oil. They thought they could catch Jesus off guard, off guard by flattery. Kent Hughes, he said it this way, and I really like the way he said it. Gossip is what you say behind someone's back that you would never say to their face. Flattery is what you say to someone's face that you would never say behind their back. Isn't that good? Like, man, I heard that, and it was just like instantly writing it down. I was like, that's true. Gossip is what you say behind someone's back you would never say to their face. Flattery is what you say to their face, but you don't mean it. That's why you would never say it behind their back. And so here they come. They're lavishing praise upon him. And notice how they address him. Oh, teacher. Here they come as humble students before him. And they say, we know that you speak and teach rightly. I mean, they're just buttering him up and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. I mean, they're buttering up Jesus like a piece of corn on a hot day, right? I mean, like, they're just preparing him here, and they're just like, look at us. And you can just tell, like, they're just conniving as they're saying these words. Verse 22, they now lay their trap. They ask the question, is it lawful? us to give tribute to Caesar or not. You can almost hear them snickering like, <laughs> we have him. We know. We have him. So what are they asking? Well, once a year, 
all the Jewish males who lived in Judea had to pay a tax. And it was a way of reminding them that they live under Roman rule. And the, the cost of this tax, the price, was it was a denarius, which is a day's wage. Now, on one side of this coin would be Tiberius Caesar, or Augustus Caesar. It would be his face. Now, on the other side, it was written, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. So it's a very idolatrous piece, because what it's saying is, is Caesar is God, and by uh, possessing this coin, and by giving tribute to Rome, you're saying, okay, we are under Roman rule, and the leader of Rome is Caesar Augustus, the divine. So let me clarify now who's actually asking the question. Because in Luke, we're told that spies come before Jesus. Now, it's believed that Luke and Mark are both built, or Luke and Matthew are both built on Mark's account of the gospel. And so, sometimes in Mark, we'll find additional details that we don't find in the others. And if we look at Mark chapter 12, on this same account, what we see is who actually is coming, who these spies are. And we read Mark 12, 13, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And so, we have Pharisees and Herodians. Now, these are the people coming, which, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's Difficult to understand right away. Uh, so we'll explain it this way. Your Herodians are your left-wing liberals. They're the ones who have abandoned Judaism. They are Jews who say, man, Rome's in control. We want to be on the good side. We want the good seats. So we're going to jump on the bandwagon of Rome, and we're going to ride that as far as it goes. And then you have the Pharisees who have the right-wing conservatives, and they're old-school Judaism. We're not breaking the law. We're doing everything the law says, which is why they were considered so moral. And so these are, these are two groups that are bitter enemies of each other. It's like Hillary Clinton and Trump coming to have lunch together. It just doesn't happen, right? You know, right wing, left wing, extremes, not coming together. But the one thing that brings them together is their hatred for Jesus. And that's one thing. If you notice in the world, people can hate each other over millions of things. But one thing that does unite People in this world is their hatred for God, the Word, and Christians. You start advocating for, for life, for, for pro-life against abortion. If you start advocating for traditional marriage, as God calls it, all of a sudden you're a bigot, and all of a sudden you're being labeled. The world is very much against the Word of God. It is very much against the authority of Christ so here we see these two groups who hate one another, have nothing in common except for their hatred of Jesus. They come together to lay a trap. And so, so here's what they're asking. If Jesus says, pay the tax, then the Pharisees are there to say, ha, traitor, not a real Messiah. The real Messiah comes to redeem us from Rome. You are not the Messiah. And therefore, the people of Israel will discount him and no longer pay attention to him. But if he says, don't pay the tax, the Herodians are there to say, ha, a rebel, anarchist, we'll arrest him at this moment, take him to the governor, well, he will be probably killed for rebellion against Rome. So it's a no-win situation. In fact, what they're doing here is just what Jesus did to them earlier in chapter 20 when Jesus says, tell me, is the baptism of John from man or from God? It's an either-or question. They're trapped. If they answer this way, they're doomed. If they answer this way, they're doomed. And so the Pharisees and the Herodians have taken notes. 
and said, you know, when Jesus gave us that either-or question, he trapped us. Now we're going to give him an either-or question, and we'll trap him. So they're coming and saying, we, we, we know your game, Jesus. We're going to play the same game you do. They're like hunters. They've lured the lion into their trap. They've sprung the trap, and now they're getting ready to thrust their spears into him, and soon they're about to find out that they are no match for this lion. What we see is that Jesus is not an animal that can be trapped by man. I, I love verse 23. Look at verse 23. It's just, it's just amazing. He, he perceived their craftiness. Like here they're, they're thinking they're tricking him. They're, they're buttering up. And he says, I, I know what you're doing. I, I know your hearts. See, when we, when we come throughout Scripture, what we see, Jesus is the Son of God. He is sovereign. He rules over everything. He knows everything. He doesn't just look at how we look on the outside. He sees our hearts. Which is why there will be no one on judgment day that comes before Jesus. And Jesus says, I do not know you. Depart from me. And they say, actually, you've made a mistake. You don't actually know me. I think you missed, over, you missed me. You didn't really pay attention to me, Jesus. You don't really understand who I am. Let me explain myself. You say, no, I know exactly who you are because I'm sovereign. I see all things. I know all things. There's nothing that has ever been blinded from me. And I look directly at your heart. And I know that you have not believed in me. There's no tricking Jesus Christ. Their flattery, all of it, has done nothing for them. And so now, Jesus will teach them rightly. He will not show partiality. And so in verses 24 and 25, Jesus responds. He says, well, show me a denarius. And then he says the question, whose image is on it? They respond, Caesar's. Therefore, he says, well, render to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. Verse 26, the trap has failed. They're dumbfounded. They're in awe. They marvel. Now just think this through. They're marveling at the one they hate. They're going, did you get him too? You didn't see that coming? Their plan has failed. They're silent. So what did Jesus do here? What is it that he actually said? What's so amazing at this, at this verse? Well, what he does here, well, he says, why does Jesus give the coin to Caesar? Why, why does he say do that? And it's because image matters. The first question he says is, whose likeness is on it? And of course, they respond, well, it has Caesar. Therefore, the logic is, it belongs to Caesar. There's his image, therefore it belongs to him. Now think about this. This is an amazing moment right here for Jesus to really say what he thinks about a Roman pagan government, about a secular government. This is, this is prime opportunity, right? I mean, if we're going to get a rebellion started, if we're going to gather a group of people, we're going to make a stand against Rome, this is the time. But rather than calling for rebellion, he calls for submission. He does not advocate to rebel against a pagan secular authority. Rather, he says submit to them. Yeah, give the coin. And we see this all throughout Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. Peter says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. In 1 uh, Timothy chapter 2, it's Paul says, pray for the kings. Pray for those who are in governmental positions. All throughout the Scripture, we see submission to authorities, pagan or not. We see this also all throughout the Old Testament. If you begin with, uh, with Joseph, he's taken into Egypt, where what? He becomes second in command. What does he do? He works for the good of the country, 
where he saves them in this drought, which eventually goes for the good of all God's people. If we move further on, we come across Daniel, which he too is taken captive by a pagan nation, by Babylon, where he too becomes second in command. You kind of notice a trend that goes when people are taken, when Christians are taken in the Old Testament by foreigners, they, always, they end up moving into high commands where God uses them for the preservation of his people. If you go to the book of Esther, we see Esther and Mordecai. Esther becomes queen. Mordecai becomes what? Second in command of the Persian empire. Where they also use for the good of the nation and the good of God's people. Jeremiah the prophet, when the Israel is about to go into Babylon, this is what he says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So it's under clear, underst- it's clear understanding. God is the one sending his people into the, uh, the exile. And he says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. What's he saying? Jeremiah is not saying, okay, guys, when you get into Babylon, you're going to look for ways to undermine the authorities and we're going to take over. Well, he says, plant gardens. Live there. Give your daughters, give your sons away in marriage. Work for the good of the pagan nation that God has sent you into. He does not call for rebellion. He calls for submission. Now, probably the clearest teaching on this, and in Romans chapter 13, where Paul surely builds off of what Jesus is communicating here. In Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, this is what Paul says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now listen to this. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those, will, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now think that through. Here we learn. All earthly authorities exist only because God has placed them there and because God allows them to exist. All earthly pagan authorities exist because God allows it. And he calls us to submit to them. He says, whoever resists these authorities resists God. By resisting them, we are resisting the sovereign rule of God. So what does this mean? It means whether we agree or disagree with our politicians, with our president, with our Congress, we respect them, we pray for them, we support them, and we obey the laws that, we make, uh, that they make. They're in the position that God has placed, and by resisting and rebelling against those laws, we rebel against God himself. We are not anarchists. We are not rebellion, rebellion people. Our goal is not necessarily that we'd be free from a secular government. Our goal is not that there would be a Christian flag hanging over the White House. That is not the goal. That happens, that's great. We love that, right? We can pray for that. That is not what we die for. According to Scripture, what God says, what's been inspired by His prophets and His apostles, is that we submit to the very authorities that are in this world. We are not causing rebellion. 
Hey, Andrew, is it cold in here? Is anyone cold in here? I think the air conditioner got a little colder. You want to just, I, I actually can feel the coolness up here, which I never feel. I'm like, man, if I'm feeling that, I'm pretty sure you all are probably all feeling it. Um, now, does this mean that we obey every rule, every law that comes from government? Are we just simply robots? Well, the government says to do it, so this is what we do. No. We know that's also not true. One thing, when you come into the Bible, there's always tensions, okay? God is sovereign, and yet we have free will, in a sense. Okay, so there's always these tensions that exist in the Bible. We, we, we choose to believe in God, and yet we're only saved by His grace. There's these tensions that are there. And so here, God is sovereign over all things. He places authorities. We're to submit to them, and yet not always. There's these tensions. So when is it that we would not? Well, in Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand before Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar has built a great, um, he's built a great uh, idol. He says, bow before it. If you don't, you die. They say, so kill us. We will not bow before a pagan god. We will not bow before an idol. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles are, are arrested because they disobey the council. Acts chapter 5, verse 27 to 29. Let me read this. And when they had brought them, they set them, <clears throat> they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in his name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. They're referring, of course, to Jesus. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. So when do we resist government? When do we resist and disobey the authorities? When their rule is in direct opposition of the word of God. That's when we stand firm against it. And yet we also do not rebel. As, as rebellious type people, we peacefully resist. This is what we see in Scripture. I don't know if you've thought this through before, where you're at before, but according to Scripture, God places authorities and he uses them to accomplish his will. Now, we don't always understand why he uses the people that he does to accomplish his will. But one thing we know from the trajectory of Scripture, God is bringing all things to the time where his son will return. He's in control. He's the ultimate authority. And by submitting to the local authorities, it is a means of submission and worship to our God. Now, let's come back to Jesus' answer. He says, it bears the image of Caesar, therefore give it to Caesar. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Then he says, and give to God the things that are God. So what belongs to God? Well, in one sense, we could say, well, everything belongs to God. We see in Genesis 1, he creates all things. He's sovereign. He possesses all things. But what is the logic of the argument? The logic so far has been the image that you bear is what you belong to. So the question is, what bears the image of God? Right? If the coin bears the image of Caesar, it belongs to Caesar. And we're now to give the things that are God's. What bears God's image? So again, we go to Scripture. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Humanity is what bears the image of God. God made you. And he made me, made all of humanity different than the rest of creation. He makes us in his image. And it means far more than just our bodies. 
It means our soul, our mind, our emotions, all of that has been made in the very image of God. Now, there's many in the world that would, would seek to deny this, because remember, there will always be people in the world who want to deny the authority of God, the word of God, and the people of God. Many will say, well, no, we, we don't bear the image of God. We believe in evolution, and we come from, you know, monkeys, or we come from some type of primate, we some, come from some type of evolutionary cause. There are many people who would say that rather than believe in a divine creator, they believe in the random combination of atoms, and thus we are a cosmic accident, the world is, and we are thus a cosmic accident that is formed by just the random colliding of molecules and atoms, and thus we are the product of that. There are many who reject that God has simply made us in his image. And so that's kind of a whole other conversation to get into what that all looks like. But what's, what's Jesus getting at here in Luke 20? Jesus is after something much greater than our money. Jesus isn't after denarius, not after coin. He's after what has his image. He doesn't, it's not for a car, for a house, those kind of things. He wants what's made in his image. He wants you and me. Think about it. That's why we're made in his image, right? That's the whole point. We've been made in his image. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus comes in the flesh, in the image of man, he comes and dies on the cross so that he would save man, so that he would redeem man, so that he'd offer forgiveness and adoption for man. Jesus did not come and die necessarily so that there would be birds and trees and mountains and elephants and dogs, although dogs will, not cats, will be in heaven. We all know. It's a very theological issue that we will die over here. On the, no, I'm not just But he died so people, the church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ would be adopted into his family and be with him forever. Not necessarily those other things. Those are all like just icing on the cake. But who did he come for? People. In Genesis, Adam and Eve are made in the image of God, but because of sin, they rebelled against God, and thus now they are a distorted image. We had the fair not too long ago here at Thurston County, and uh, we didn't make it this year, but sometimes they, at fairs and carnivals, they have those mirrors. You know what I'm talking about? Those funny mirrors, the ones you stand in front and make you look really tall and thin, or really short and fat. I mean, they're just like, just distort, like just who you look like, and you're like, that's not really what I look like. Sometimes they make you look all wavy. This is what sin has done. It has distorted who we are in God. Is distorted our image. Now, this is why the Pharisees resist and reject Jesus. See, sin, because it has distorted our image, no longer do we want to be made in God's image. We want to be God. I mean, think about it. Why did Adam and Eve reject God? Satan comes in the garden and says, God's holding out on you. You could eat the fruit and you could be like God. You don't need him to tell you what to do. Eat the fruit, become like God, and you are God. You can decide what is right and wrong. This is why they rebel against God. This is why the Pharisees reject Jesus. They don't really want a God. They want to be God. When Jesus comes threatening their power, their position, and their prestige, he's threatening their little thrones that they live on, and they want nothing to do with this Jesus. They think that Jesus has come to change all that they have, and, and they don't want that change. They've worked hard for what they believe in. You know, I think that's why many people, we reject the gospel, we resist the gospel, 
you think, well, I don't, I don't really want this kind of God. I don't want what he promises. And we have a, a very wrong understanding of the life that God promises. See, God sends his son to save us, not so we'd have a miserable life. He calls us to get off of our thrones so that we'd join him on his throne. Do you know that? He calls us to come off of our little, small, finite thrones and join him on his throne. Revelation 3.21. This is what Jesus says. The one who conquers, meaning the Christian that perseveres, the Christian stands firm. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Do you hear that? Jesus sits on the throne with the Father, and he says, I bring you to sit with me on my throne. Well, his throne is the Father's throne. So by sitting with Jesus, we sit with the Father. There is no other religion like this, where the God who creates, who creates humanity, enters into his creation, becomes like his creation, and makes his creation then like himself. There is no other religion like this like this. In fact, it's absurd when you go into the other stories and uh, religious tales that are out there. When we come to the gospel, what we see God holds nothing back. He gives us his son and he gives us his spirit, the two things that exist with God in past eternity before there's ever creation. His son and his spirit and God gives them gives those completely to us. His son comes and dies on the cross and we believe in him, his spirit comes and dwells within us. He then adopts us into his family. He shares his very glory with us. He shares his throne with us. In 2 Peter, we see he shares his very divine nature with us. He fills us up with all wisdom and with all joy. God holds nothing back from those who believe in him. He gives everything to those who are made in his image. He holds nothing back. Jesus is not calling us to a miserable life. He's calling us to a life greater than we could have ever imagined. And so how are we t- who have been made into the image of Jesus? How are we to live? We who believe in Jesus. Well, what does this look like? If, God's, if Jesus says, well, give to God, what is God? So what does that look like? Okay, so we're made in his image, so that means we are to give God ourselves. What does that look like? What does it look like for us who are made in the image of God to live for God? In the simplest way, we can just say it means to live like Jesus. And simple does not mean easy. And simple does not mean shallow. Jesus has given us everything so that we would possess everything. That's not a prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel will come and say, Jesus died so you can have your best life now. He wants you to have your riches, your fame, your power, your, your prestige, your position. You have it all now. But the problem with the prosperity gospel, for one, it's a false gospel, and two, it's too shallow. It doesn't offer enough. See, the prosperity gospel says you should have all of your riches now. You can be popular now. You can be the best this now. You can have the best house now. You can have your best car now. You can have all of these things now. But what do we know about the word of God? Everything in this world is coming to an end. Jesus will one day return. This world will be rolled up and it be, be, be set on fire is what the word says. It's the imagery that it gives us. Because God is going to make a new heavens and new earth. One that there will be no sin. One that those who have believed in Jesus Christ will dwell with God forever, delighting in him forever in his presence. And so the prosperity gospel says, you can have your best life now. And God says, I have come to save you that I would give you everything that I have and it will last for all of eternity. 
It's not just about physical things that will be burned up. God gives us his eternal spiritual riches that will last forever, and only those truly satisfy us. This means when we go to work, our number one goal is not how do we just move up the corporate ladder? How do we get promotions? How do we get everyone to recognize me? Now, it's good to work hard. It's good to earn money. It's good to have promotions. But our goal at work is no longer how do I use people so that I get ahead, but it's how do I show the love of Jesus here at work? How do I show them the cross? How do I show them the grace of God? No longer, if if you're on social media, our goal is not on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest to show the best life now. You know, I think sometimes as Christians, what we do is we are intent on showing the world that we don't need Jesus. You ever think about that? Like, look at our Facebook, look at our Instagrams, look at our Pinterest. Do they show our constant need for the grace of God? Or do they show, man, these people just look good. Have you ever wondered why sometimes unbelievers, they look at the church and they go, and they're just really a perfect kind of people. They have nothing wrong with them. Our goal is not to show our independence of Jesus, but to show our dependence upon Jesus, which means we're free from trying to put this facade on that we have a perfect life. Now, it's okay to put good things on Facebook. And so I'm not saying that we should only put our trash out. I don't even think we should probably air our trash out on Facebook. But we're free from trying to put this facade out there that now we can show people that we truly need the grace of God because it's in the grace of God we've been made new it's in the grace of God that we've been receiving all the spiritual riches that God gives us it's in the grace of God that we understand the joy and the wisdom and the nature that he gives us and so that whether you're at work or whether you're at school Our goal is not to be just the most popular person. I mean, Chris gives a great testimony. He stands up here, most popular guy in school, captain of the football team, miserable. It's not the goal. But while we're at school, while we're at work, wherever it is that you find yourself, our goal is to now show the love and grace of Jesus. As he gave us everything, now we're free to give everything also. So we can love those when we look at, you know those people who are at your school that no one sits with that no one loves, guess what now we are free to do? We're not worrying about our position and the way people look at us because in Christ we have everything. And so now we're free to go love those who are not loved, just like what Jesus comes to do in the gospel. He comes to seek and save the lost, the sinners. And so now because God's grace is in us, we are now able to come to those at school, those at work, those in our society, those in our neighborhoods, and come and love them Not so people look at us and go, wow, what a great guy. Wow, look at that. Look at that group of people. But so that they would understand the very gospel of Jesus Christ. And that he comes to us by grace so that now his grace lives in us so that we might love others as he loves us. Now sometimes there's people who say, well, that's just kind of radical. I mean, loving these people who no one else loves. Or if we begin looking at other parts of scripture, we might say, is Jesus really calling us to give away our houses or our possessions, our cars? Is Jesus calling us to to give things away in radical ways for the advancement of the gospel? That's radical living. But the Bible calls that normal Christianity. Now is the Bible calling us to all give away everything that we have? Maybe. For some he does. Some he blesses us richly with possessions that we would use them in extraordinary ways for the advancement of the gospel. But we must come to understand that when we read the scripture, we're not reading a version of radical Christianity. We're reading normal 
Christianity and what it is to be made into the very image and the very grace of God. And because God has given us everything in Jesus Christ, we're free from now trying to gain our own power, prestige, and position. Because in Christ, we have everything. We sit on the throne of God with him forever. We possess all of his riches. We are adopted into the very family of God. And because his righteousness is on us, God looks at us the very same way he looks at his son Jesus. Think about how that frees us. We so run after man's approval. That's what the Pharisees, the Pharisees won't touch Jesus because they're afraid of man. But as Christians, we're freed. That's why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they stand against the king. Fine, fine, kill us. It doesn't matter because whatever you do to us, God holds us close. This is why Peter responds in Acts chapter 5, we obey God, not man. If your laws go against the word of God, we will resist you every single day. And we will do so proudly. And we will do so peacefully and joyfully, no matter what it is that you do with us, because we're not worried about your approval. Because in Christ, we have his approval, and we've been made new like him. So two things I just want to say. This is what table groups are about. We've been talking a lot about table groups. That's our small groups. We call them tables because we love tables here. Um, we don't really love tables, but we just believe important conversations happen around tables. So it's just that imagery that we like to use um, this is what they are, okay? They're getting ready to launch in, in October. We're trying to make sure everyone who wants to be involved in them can be involved in them. Um, table groups are about Christians intentionally coming together for the transformation into Jesus Christ. That's what they're there for. Christians committing for transformation into Jesus Christ. Because if you're like anyone else, what we do is we often forget the riches that we have in Jesus Christ. We often begin to deny and forget all the things that Jesus has given us. And so we slowly begin to think, oh, man, I need man's approval. And we slowly begin to compromise on just the way we live and the things we think about. And so we have other people that we commit to that they can speak into us and that we can speak into them. And we come around God's word, encouraging one another for transformation, encouraging each other to become more like Jesus. Elders. Elders are given to the church that they would say, imitate me as we imitate Christ. Their goal is to help lead the church into transformation. Now, it's not to necessarily become like the elders, become Chris, like me, or whatever elders we bring. The goal is to become like Jesus. The elders are simply just the shepherds that are helping guide us into the image and transformation of Jesus Christ. That's why we want to so carefully think about the elders that are going to be leading in the church. If you're a Christian here, I want to remind you, and I hope you know you are made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God, and God delights in you so much. His Son dwells in you. His very Spirit is with you. You are being transformed. Remember 2 Corinthians 3.18? Y'all remember that one? Degree by degree by degree by degree. You're being made into the image of Jesus Christ. You possess everything. Possess everything. Do not forget that. If you're an unbeliever, the reason the Pharisees rejected Jesus is because they wanted their thrones. They wanted a God that would make much of them. They wanted a God made in their image. They wanted to be God. They couldn't imagine life off of their thrones. Therefore, they reject the gospel. And that may be you here today. Maybe you've been in, maybe you've been a part of church, or maybe you've been, maybe you're here and you've been invited today, and you're not really sure you're here. But as you listen to this message, you're saying, man, I, I don't think that's for me. 
I like who I am. I like my life. I like all the things that I have. Listen, all the things that we have apart from Christ are shallow. They promise too little and they never can deliver. Only in Christ do we experience the true riches of Christ that will never fade away. They only get brighter and richer for there's a day coming that Jesus comes and we will enter into his presence into the new heavens and new earth. At that moment, we will truly, in his presence, reign with him forever, never to be separated, never to experience shame, guilt, or any type of disappointment or pain. All the effects of sin will be gone. So if you're an unbeliever, I encourage you, come today. Bow before the throne of God. For in doing so, in receiving the grace of God, he brings you onto his throne. Let's pray. Father, Father, it's, it's extraordinary to even think that we're made in your image. We can begin to comprehend that in some ways and in other ways. It's too incredible, it's too beautiful, it's too amazing for us to truly comprehend what it is to be made in your image. And the fact that you save us, adopt us, and you now share your very divine nature with us, God. Your gospel gives us everything. Lord, I pray that we who are here, we would not settle for what the world promises. We would not settle for the lies of sin. But that, God, we would see the beauty of your gospel. That we would see the joy that you set before us in Jesus. We would see the life that you give us. And God, by your grace, bring us into that. Help us to know it. Help us to love it. Help us to embrace that every single day. Lord, I pray that we as a church, that we'd be involved with other Christians in table groups in whatever format there is, that we would spur one another on, that we would remember and that we would embrace the life that you've called us into as Christians. Lord, if there's anyone here, anyone here who does not know you, who has been resisting your son, Jesus Christ, who's been resisting the grace, I pray for your grace just to come upon them in your spirit that their will would be broken and that you would bring them into your presence today. May they experience your joy. May they experience the life, the peace that only comes in your son, Jesus. Lord, you have made us into your image. Help us to live for you in all aspects of our lives. In your name, Jesus, amen.